Hi everyone, welcome to today's episode of History in the News. My name is Donnie and I'm from Ox's Practical Defense. Today what we're going to do is we're going to go through and break down Vladimir Putin's speech from last week just before Russia launched a fresh invasion of the Ukraine. Now, this has been a really interesting week and a half and uh, quite a tragic one at that. We've seen that Vladimir has decided to send troops across the, the Ukrainian border and to actively attempt to take over the country. Now, this coup that we've been watching in the last week or so has actually been in the process of, of boiling, coming to a boiling point for uh, many years. We've seen smaller infractions, well, really not smaller infractions, but we've seen other infractions that have happened uh, in all of the presidencies except for this pr most recent one with, um, with President Trump. He was the only president who did not actually have a uh, Russian invasion at some level into Ukraine. And so uh, the, uh, what we've been watching over the last couple of years uh, has really really come to a head at this point. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go through and we're going to discuss all of the all of the topics that Putin included in his speech last week. Now, this speech was couched as a a type of justification for what was about to happen. So what he was doing was he was listing a bunch of reasons saying this is why we're taking action against Ukraine and this is what we're hoping to do and all of this stuff. Now, it, here's the thing that made this particularly interesting is that almost all of it is flat out false. And so we're going to go through using uh, the New York Times translation of his speech as our source text. And we're going to read through a couple of his quotes, actually quite a number of his quotes, because he had a quite a number of claims. And we're going to just briefly discuss each of those. And, and honestly, it doesn't take a whole lot from my end to explain what's going on here, because they're so outwardly false. It's from American perspective, it's very hard to see what he's even trying to do. But... Next week, what we'll talk about uh, in, in the next episode, maybe not next week, we'll see when the next one goes up. <laughs> in the next episode, what we're going to do is we're going to discuss a the Long Telegram, which is a telegram that was written by a guy named George Kennan in 1946. And in that telegram, at the time, uh, George Kennan was the ambassador, the United States ambassador to Moscow. And so wh what he did was he went through and he effectively wrote out all of the things that were going to happen in the next 50 years that had to do with the Soviet Union all the way up through 91. And I'm going to argue also uh, that according to what he wrote at that time in the Long Telegram, we are still in the same Cold War. Really, honestly, it's quite astonishing to see what has actually transpired and what he is doing and, and basically how Putin is playing straight out of the Soviet playbook that was also used uh, with a number of other regimes, including uh, the Nazi Germany and, uh, and others. If you look at uh, the different type of propaganda type of propaganda campaigns that they run, they all have a lot of similar things. And this speech that Putin is, just went through this last week is a prime example of that. It's outwardly false in so many different ways, but what he, the communists have always been famous for doing is for controlling the media through their state-owned media and then controlling the narrative through that, through entertainment, the news cycle, and various other methods. And, and there's many different levels to this but it's the only way that that's the 
communists were able to retain power was by controlling the narrative. And so what he's doing is he's trying to harken back to what originally worked for the Soviets in today. Now, I'm going to argue that there's a couple different ways, a couple of reasons why this won't work like it used to. Um, The biggest thing, honestly, is that we have the Internet. And just a couple days ago, um, I hope most of you saw uh, quite an astonishing thing happened. Elon Musk actually just worked with his Skylink uh, company to send uh, to send satellite Internet to Ukraine at the behest of a Ukrainian government official on Twitter. Uh, Like that's completely uh, beyond what I could have even imagined a couple of years ago, even now, really, honestly, it's hard for me to wrap my head around. It's crazy that what happened, he actually, on Twitter, if you go and you look this up, you'll see that uh, the Ukrainian official posted on uh, on Twitter kind of in a wish-like like way, where he was saying, geez, it would be great if you know Elon Musk could give the Ukrainians internet because the, our, uh, all of their infrastructure has been destroyed by the Russians and so they in large places of this of the country don't have internet and so they're not able to upload the videos that show what's actually going on and they're also not able to send those videos to the Russian people who are not actually the ones who are pro-military and pro-communist who are trying to take over this country and so with having internet access that has created a whole new level of of freedom of information that has never been uh, around before. Now, you'll see in other dictatorships, such as communist China, if you look at China, there's actually many different levels of, of complexity that's been added to this. For instance, Google has its own version of Google for China that limits search results based on what the Chinese government uh, allows for. You have different other types of search engines that do the same thing in China because they're only allowed to provide what the government wants people to know. And uh, in North Korea, if you look at North Korea, largely that state is, if you've ever looked at any of the um, the videos or pictures of, of North Korea from the sky at night, you can see South Korea is ablaze with lights and is uh, has electricity throughout the entire country and is, and is one of the a very well-developed country. Whereas you look at North Korea and there's basically no lights except for in the capital city, Pyongyang, in North Korea. It's just a thing where in the past, the communists were able to control the news cycle and control the information, and they were able to take control of all of this stuff and then tell people what they were to know. Uh, uh, one last start example of this, and we'll actually talk more about this in future episodes, and, and eventually what I would like to do is pull some clips from it so I can play them from you directly. But if you haven't watched it, it's definitely something you should watch. If you go on Amazon, uh, Amazon Prime... There's a series called Comrade Detective. Now, Comrade Detective is actually recovered footage out of Romania from the 80s. It's a six-episode series, and it basically follows a detective, as you'd probably guess, who is trying to uncover uh, the, the, a, a plot that is designed to infiltrate the Romanian country with capitalist stuff whether that's, uh, they have several different episodes, but it's basically pursuing this uh, insurgent capitalism that is taking root in within Romania, and he's trying to quash it out and find the perpetrators, and he's filmed as the good guy. And honestly, there are some uh, ridiculously good quotes out of this, um, and I'll, I'll take and I'll play some, uh, some 
some stuff from that for you in the next couple of weeks. But one thing I do advise is that uh, if you're going to watch that, don't watch it with kids around. It is uh, there is a lot of language. So the the uh, the the communists really like the language, and uh, there is some nudity in I think episode four. So you have to keep all that stuff in mind. But it's a really great history lesson. Uh, going through and and watching it because you it almost it shows how powerful the communist news machine and media machine was and it shows you how they can go and try to manipulate the people by using popular media sources so without further ado now that we've gone through all that stuff we're gonna actually go and get into putin's speech and get into all of the different quotes. So when we start, uh, like I mentioned, I'm pulling all of these from a New York Times article where they actually had a translation for each of these quotes, and then they had some of their notes, and then I added a few of mine as well. So I'm borrowing from both sources here, and uh, then I use some other independent research. So when we're starting off with this first quote, the way he started off his speech was he started off by challenging Ukraine's borders. Now, here's the thing. It, what he's going to state here is quite interesting. I'm going to go ahead and just read this quote directly from what the New York Times translation says. Quote, Since time immemorial... The people living in the southwest of what has historically been Russian land have called themselves Russians and Orthodox Christians. So, I will start with the fact that modern Ukraine was entirely created by Russia, or, to be more precise, by Bolshevik communist Russia. This process started practically right after the 1917 revolution, and Lenin and his associates did it in a way that was extremely harsh on Russia— by separating, severing what is historically Russian land. Now, this is a really interesting point, and it's it's kind of a a paper thin argument in a lot of ways. But it, it, to a Russian audience, I could see how this could be somewhat intriguing. So, a little bit of historical context. In the last episode, we mentioned that Ukraine announced its independence from the USSR in 1991 in August of that of that year and then they basically retained most they retained independence until uh recently and as as the war goes on right now it is still independent and we're hoping that it stays that way but they announced that they were independent in 1991 but that's actually not the first time the first time that they announced that they were independent uh was in 1918 uh, at least in the in the 20th century, and so in 1918, at, right at, as the World War One was coming to a close, it was January that the Ukrainians announced that they were going to become an independent state. Now, it, here's some interesting stuff that happened around that time that really starts to muddy the waters as to who owns what and who controls what, and that's the fact that. In 1918, they, they actually set themselves up to be independent, but during that time, they were then, over the next four years, taken over back and forth and back and forth and back and forth by several different countries, including Germany and Austria, which actually happened during the war around 1916 and 17. Um, uh, Germany and Austria uh, fought with the Russians over Ukraine, and then the, eventually the Germans and the Austrians pushed Russia out. And so around that time leading up to uh, January of 1918, and actually following that, the Germans and Austri Austrians had a, uh, a an interest in uh, the Ukraine. And here's the reason why. It's the same reason why the Nazis then went back and tried to take over Ukraine again in World War II, as we spoke about last week. The 
what they were trying to do is they were trying to tap into Ukraine's resources because Ukraine is, is known for having significant resources of oil and metals and food. And that's primarily the thing that, uh, as I was reading and doing my own research, that seemed to be of the most key interest was the food that they could actually take because Ukraine was running a surplus. So they were able to take out the, the food that was being farmed by the local farmers and export it to their own troops and back to their own countries. So Germany and Austria were using the food and the resources from Ukraine during World War One, and they continue to hold, have a grasp over, uh, over the Ukraine. Now, during that time, the, uh, they actually, during that time, uh, Ukraine announced that they were independent. But by March of that year, just two months later, it's really interesting to see what happened. The Germans are now controlling the governments that announced that they were independent, but basically from within. So you, there's actually a quote here that I'll read for you. In the words of Wilhelm Groner, a German army commander in Kiev, quote, The Ukrainian administrative structure is in total disorder, completely incompetent, and in no way ready for quick results. It would be in our interest to treat the Ukrainian government as a cover and for us to do the rest ourselves. Now, this was March of 1918, like I said, and uh, at the time you had the Germans and Austrians controlling the government. And as this guy is openly admitting is that essentially the Ukrainian government is there in name only. It's a it's a house of cards and so the Germans are actually controlling it from within and uh, controlling it through that and I should mention that I got that quote from a history.com article uh, talking about this particular time 1918 to 1922 over the next four years you'd end up with a really interesting situation where uh, Ukraine can changes hands several more times and so in 1918, it was under control of Germany, Austria. But at the end of World War One, with the, the Treaty of Versailles, the Germans and the Austrians were forced out of uh, the Ukraine. And so after that time, when the Germans and Austrians were forced to leave, then we have this power struggle that goes on between Poland and Russia. Now, both Poland and Russia uh, have had various different uh, both Poland and Russia have had different relationships with Ukraine over the last thousand years or so. And so as you're looking at who actually controls what, it's important to look at who controlled last. And so Russia and Poland get into this struggle where they go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And there's actually a time during that point uh, where I believe it's 1920, where the Ukrainian government that is still there is trying to form a relationship with Poland, but it really doesn't work out. And so they're trying to form a relationship with Poland to uh, to maintain their independence, but also to be protected by the Russians. But there's uh, the, the contracts and don't actually work out. And so by 1922, Poland fails and falls out of the picture. And thus, Ukraine is actually... In is added to uh, the USSR and is actually one of the first major countries that is integrated into the USSR during that time. And it remains that way until the next time when they declared their independence in 1991 of, in August of that year. Uh, now, here's the thing. During all of that period of time, you have a really large amount of changing back and forth and switching back and forth and having different people controlling this area. And it's been that way. The reason, one of the reasons why the Ukraine is such a complex topic is that it's been that way for legitimately thousands of years.
And so when we go and we try to unravel who actually controls what and who has a right to control what, I think it's important to point at what, who recently held it and what is their identity. Are they a infiltrator? Are they, some, are they an external force that's controlling it? Or is it an internal force where they're becoming self-sufficient? So in Putin's quote here, he's just talking about how basically the, the, he, he basically frames it as, well, the Ukrainians have been held as a, as a Russian asset since, since 1918 is what he actually says. And, and he's saying that basically right after the 1917 revolution, which is where the Romanovs were actually excommunicated and the, uh, the Red Army took over, when the Red Army took over, then there he's saying that uh, Lenin and his associates then split the line to cut the Ukraine as a separate piece of Russia. It, it's totally fiction. It's not even true. Uh, in 1918, like we just discussed, there was many other things going on besides that. So that's point number one. Uh, it, it's just out. It's outright wrong and not founded in any towards, sort of facts. Now, if you want some more detail on this, a friend pointed me to a podcast called The Rest is History. Now, they have a podcast uh, that they just re released last week where they're actually talking about the history of Ukraine in greater depth, so you can go and listen to that. It's a little over an hour long, and basically they go back to way back where they're talking about um, how uh, the Slavic countries became part of, became independent and how they uh, basically separated themselves from both Eastern and Western culture in some ways and kind of formed their own pocket of, of cultures in that area. And so you can go and listen to that and they talk about all the way from you know two or 3,000 years in the past to the current. And it's very interesting. It gives you a way better overview than what I'm able to do right now. So I'd recommend going and listen to that. Again, the podcast is The Rest is History. So here's the second point that Putin made during his speech. The second one was that there is a heavy threat. Here's the direct quote. And today, the grateful progeny has overturned monuments to Lenin in the Ukraine. They call it decommunization. You want decommunization? Very well. This suits us just fine. But why stop halfway? We are ready to show what real decommunizations would mean for Ukraine. Now, here's actually one of the quote, because I thought that the, the New York Times was able to clarify what he meant by this statement a little bit. So here's the actual quote from the New York Times in their commentary. It says, Mr. Putin is pointedly suggesting that Ukrainians should have thanked Vladimir Lenin, this founding Soviet leader whom Mr. Putin believes for Ukraine's I'm sorry, blames for Ukraine's borders. Rather than overturning Soviet-area statues during the 2014 protests against Kiev's pro-Moscow government, his reference to real decommunization implies that Mr. Putin is preparing to erase what he considers Lenin's actual legacy of forcibly redrawing Ukraine's borders to his liking. So here's the thing that's that's really interesting is that is that. It, Putin is trying to separate himself from the communists while also using their tactics. So he's saying, he's saying, well, Lenin and his compatriots who separated Ukraine were wrong. And so we need to right that wrong by taking over the Ukraine and integrating it back into our country. Now, he also is taking basically every, like I was saying about how he controls state media and how he's even doing this speech is a, a mirror image of what the Soviets did. And so it, he's using their strategy and then trying to distance himself from them at the same time, which it really creates a, an interesting paradox. So what 
he's actually saying is very similar to a, 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 an odd like circumstance that we could find ourselves in. So it, it's almost like he's saying that like if from a United States perspective perspective, like for instance, say the United States never earned its independence like uh britain was basically sitting there right now and then went you know we don't think the united states actually ever earned their independence um we great britain was just not able to actually initiate and able to control the colonies and so when they broke free it was not actually that they earned their independence it's just that we couldn't control them anymore and this is what's actually going to lean into his next point. But the big thing is that as you're looking at all this stuff, he's basically saying that Ukraine was separated in error. So now we need to take it back because it's rightfully ours, though he doesn't actually provide any evidence for that. And that's completely uh, it's not even what he's saying uh, is not even historically true. And so we're looking at this as a, it's like a double lie so far. And we're going to keep saying additional layers added onto that. So here's his next quote. The virus of nationalist ambitions is still with us. And the mine laid at the initial stage to destroy state immunity, immunity to the disease of nationalism was ticking. As I have already said, the mine was the right of secession from the Soviet Union. It is now, this is part B, it is now that radicals and nationalists, including and primarily those in Ukraine, are taking credit for having gained independence. As we can see, this is absolutely wrong. The disintegration of our united country has brought about by the historic strategic mistakes on the part of the Bolshevik leaders and the CPSU, which, is, uh, which stood for the, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, CPSU leadership, Mistakes committed at different times in the state building and in economic and ethnic policies, the collapse of the historical Russia, known as the USSR, is on their conscience. So essentially, it's the same thing. He's saying that the USSR leadership failed and they lost Ukraine. But Ukraine in 1991 did not have the right to declare, to, to declare themselves independent, which is just a it's it's just an un-american it's very it's very opposite to what the initial american mind would think because as americans in, when we signed our own declaration of independence we said we don't care what britain thinks we're being independent we're going to be independent and we're creating our own country whatever you do about it and obviously there was a war about that <laughs> and the thing is is that in 1991 the Ukrainians did very much a similar thing. They said, we are going to be independent from you now, and you don't have the ability to control us anymore, so we're going to be, we're taking that responsibility upon ourselves. And Putin is trying to turn it and say, well, you didn't have the right to do that, which is honestly, uh, it's so fake and so weak. It's hard to imagine that this is actually persuasive in any way, but it's that's kind of opposite thought process that we'll talk about when we go through the long tall, uh, the long telegram. It's a thought process and a, 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 a learning method that has been taught by the state within Russia and within Soviet-controlled states. For since their inception in the early 20th century. And it's a, a method of indoctrination that basically takes your mind and makes it mush so that they can fix it for you and tell you what to think. But really, ultimately, when we look at all this stuff, he, he it, it's just a, it's almost a non-starter argument. And it's, it's very interesting that he's using these as his, his reasoning behind them immediately launching rockets and such into a sovereign country's 
major cities. So here's his next point, his fourth point. The Ukrainian authorities, I would like to emphasize this, and this is a direct quote, began by building their statehood on the, neg- on the negation of everything that united us, trying to distort the mentality and historical memory of millions of people of entire generations living in Ukraine, it is not surprising that Ukrainian society was faced with the rise of far-right nationalism, which rapidly developed into aggressive Russophobia and neo-Nazism. Okay, let's break this down. So he's saying that the leaders of the Ukraine, after they declared their independence, then decided that they wanted to have their own identity. Oh my goodness. They actually wanted to have their own identity. And honestly, if we look all the way back through the entire time that they've been occupied, they've actually always had their own identity. If you look, uh, if you go back and listen to that podcast that I mentioned, the rest is history. They talk about how uh, in the, around the 18th, uh, 17th and 18th centuries is the first time you can really see Ukraine as having its own I- identity because it had been occupied by so many various people. And it had just been kind of seen as being a borderland and not being an actual country. But by that time, they had started to form a national image. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the different, uh, the different uh, parts that make their culture, but we'll do that in a little bit. So he's saying that they didn't really have a they didn't have a right to declare their independence in the last point. In this point, he's saying that then they tried to form their own identity, and that while forming their own identity, he that they were negating everything that that unified the USSR. And the funny thing is, this is true. He's actually is negating everything that the you are actually negating everything that the USSR preached by doing that. And he's saying that that's wrong because he sides with the USSR. He sides with the, the communists. Uh, we'll talk about his, his background. We're going to actually, in a few episodes, we'll talk more about, uh, we're going to take a deep dive into Putin's actual background. To, um, a lot of people know that he was a former, he's a former KGB agent, but it's very hard to actually find out more about him specifically. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a deeper dive into the KGB at at large during the time that he was actually in the KGB. And there's several different resources that I'm currently working through to help with that. But the big thing is that he identifies with the USSR version of nationalism. And then he says it's bad to be nationalist, even though he's nationalist on the part of the USSR. So there's just an open conflict right here about this. And then he uh, claims that they have uh, that they've engaged in aggressive Russophobia and neo-Nazism, which honestly, those are two buzzwords that don't actually have a whole lot of meaning to me. So we're going to go through the, the following quotes because he keeps digging further and further into this. Next quote. Essentially, the so-called pro-Western civilization, civilizational choice made by the oligarchic Ukrainian authorities was not and is not aimed at creating better conditions in the interest of people's well-being, but at keeping the billions of dollars that the oligarchs have stolen from the Ukrainians and are accommodating the geopolitical rivals of Russia while holding their accounts in Western banks, I should add. <laughs> I missed a line there. So what basically he's saying is that now we have all these oligarchs that are in Ukraine who are storing their money in Western banks, and then what that does is that supports Western uh, Western countries and and what he sees as enemies of Russia. Now, this is one of the things that actually plays into whether or not the Cold War ever ended. And this is something that actually you can also dig into deeper as far as 
the Cold War itself, what was the foundation for it? Why did it stay cold, and why has it never actually gotten hot? Now, there's been proxy wars, like we had Vietnam and Korea, and uh, those those conflicts, and you could even uh, say that what happened in Afghanistan has some connection to a Cold War. But the the reason, one of the things that has always transpired is that there's been a radically different view of what the Cold War was. And so when he's breaking this down, he's going through and he's saying that, uh, that, we, that they basically have a, this pro-Western uh, bent to them, and that's a bad thing. It's just because he doesn't like Western states. And he, he's going to keep drilling into this farther and farther and farther. But it essentially just comes down to the fact that, uh, that he's saying that the oligarchs in Ukraine have taken the money from Ukrainians and then are putting it into the hands of people who are not interested in their well-being. Now, I think there's an interesting line that could be taken on this from an American standpoint. Uh, many people have seen the original video from uh, Joe Biden back when he was in Ukraine. Uh, I can't remember what year it was. I think it was it was 2007 or 8. Um, and he was talking about his dealings. Uh, it might have been a little bit after that, um, but I have to go look at the date. But um, if I have the clip, I'll put it in right here. But basically what he talks about is that, so what he's actually doing here is he's talking about how he has worked with rather in, in a rather corrupt manner with Ukrainian officials before. Now, I have no doubt in my mind the Ukrainian government is corrupt in many, many different ways because it's it hails from the ultimate corruption, the USSR itself. And so they're bound to have many bad actors, but it, they still are independent and, will, and they should retain their independence whether... Putin thinks so or not. And so during this time, while we're looking at, at them, we have to realize that Ukraine is not a democracy in, in the traditional sense. They, they have elections and that sort of thing, but, but they're, they're a very authoritarian type government. And so, but they, at the same time, are, have a lot of lines that connect them to the Western world. And what that is seen as by Putin is a bad thing but can also be seen as a peacekeeping mechanism that connects them to the rest of the westernized world as, a, as in a way, a type of protection. But we're not really seeing that play out very well right now, is it? So that's his, his next point, is that essentially the Russians have to take over the Ukrainian government because the Ukrainian oligarchs are, uh, are disrespecting and the Ukrainian people are not acting in their interests. So... That means that you cr that the Russians should start launching rockets and stuff into their cities and taking over. Hmm. Okay, interesting thought. Okay, next one. Here's his deal. Now, in this section of his speech, he breaks into a, a, a part where he starts talking, uh, kind of following up on a previous line where he was talking about being Russiophobes, but he's actually talking about a false anti-Russian campaign. And it's just a, he basically just goes through a couple of different points here. I'm going to read it through and we're going to try to get through this as quickly as possible. First point, the policy to root out the Russian language and culture and promote assimil assimilation carries on. 
the Verkhovna Rada has generated a steady flow of discriminatory bills, and the law on the so-called indigenous people has already come into force. People who identify as Russians and want to preserve their identity, language, and culture are getting the signal that they are not wanted in Ukraine. Now, I should mention that the Verkhovna Rada, uh, this is something that didn't come clear in the last in the last episode. The Verkhovna Rada is actually the governing body for Ukraine. And so their their government, like I mentioned, is very different than what we think of when we think of a westernized democracy. But they have a governing body. And so when he mentions that, that's what he's talking about is he's talking about their governing body, body in the Verkhovna Rada. Now, when he goes through and he talk and when he's breaking this down and he says that that they're that they are are actually oppressing people within their own borders and that he's and that they're trying to remove russian uh, the L- russian language and replace it with ukrainian now i believe that's in their right to do and that's actually somewhat accurate in that since uh, 2004 the Ukrainians have actually been working within their schooling systems and such to integrate more and more of their own Ukrainian language, uh, which, as far as I understand, is just a different dialect of Russian in the first place. It's a it's another type of uh, of uh, the same kind of family of language. But with Ukrainian, uh, but with the Ukrainians, that they've been doing that more and more and more. Now, here's the interesting thing. So when you actually look at um, the uh, the Ukrainian president himself. He actually is known for speaking primarily Russian. And so uh, when we're looking at Zelensky, uh, he actually is known for speaking primarily Russian. And he is the current leader of Ukraine. So when you're talking about this, it's just it's so hard to actually be- like take it with any sort of like any sort of respect because you're like, OK, well, you're pushing against the fact that they're integrating more and more of of Ukrainian culture into Ukraine and using their own language and that sort of thing. Okay, so you're pushing against that. And then, but at the same time, their president speaks Russian primarily. And so you're like, well, apparently they're not pushing against it that hard, or else this guy wouldn't be speaking Russian. So it's really interesting to see all that. His next part is actually probably one of the most ridiculous claims of this entire speech. His next claim, okay, this is a direct quote, says, they prefer not to acknowledge this. There is no genocide perpetrated against 14 million people. Now, I think that there's actually a little bit kind of a weird grammar thing going on here with the translation, but essentially what he's saying is that the Ukrainians are denying that there is a genocide going on within Ukraine against 14 million people within their borders who are friendly to the Russians and who might identify themselves as Russian. Like I mentioned last week, uh, in Crimea, in Crimea, it was a very interesting situation in 2014 because uh, almost the majority of people within Crimea actually still identified themselves as Russian. And so that was one of the reasons why when Putin annexed Crimea in 2014, he was able to use that as a talking point. He says, well, they basically think themselves as, as Russians anyway, so we're just taking what's ours. And he's trying to use a very similar line here. But now he's taking it even further because he realized that he doesn't have a leg to stand on on any of his previous points. So he's just going to he's just going to double down and say, well, there's a genocide going against 14 million people uh, who who are uh, who identify as Russian within Ukraine. Now, once again, <laughs> there is actually zero evidence. He actually tries to say that they have evidence, but he hasn't provided a shred of it, like nothing, like literally nothing. And so when we're looking at all, when we're breaking 
through and looking at how he talks about all these things, there's so much that, uh, that he says and it doesn't support. Now he starts to justify their actions as being defensive. So here's his next point. Quote, Kiev authorities cannot challenge the clearly stated choice of the people, which is why they have opted for aggressive action for activating extremist cells, including radical Islamist organizations, for sending subversives to stage terrorist attacks at critical infrastructure facilities and or and for kidnapping Russian citizens. We have factual proof that such aggressive actions are being taken with support from Western security services. None of that evidence is forthcoming. In fact, this is nothing other than preparation for hostilities against our country, Russia. The Ukrainian army is waiting to get into NATO. The West has explored the territory of Ukraine as a future theater, future battlefield that is aimed against Russia. Now, here's the thing. This is actually one of the points that has the most interesting implications of this entire speech. So the very first part where he's saying that, that's in, that the Ukrainian government, in partnership with the Western countries, have been trying to infiltrate Russia by sending in Islamist organizations and uh, creating terrorist attacks and stuff like that, they, they, don't, they haven't pro- provided any of the evidence for that, so it's very hard to actually address. But the second part of that, where he says that the Ukrainian army is waiting to join NATO so that they can aggress on Russia, is a really interesting point. Uh, there's a couple different things that go into this. So when we're looking at the, uh, the different pieces that are associated with this, we have to look at uh, the Partnership for Peace in 1994. Now, this was actually a uh, signed uh, treaty that was created under uh, President Clinton, and during his time, they created this Partnership for Peace, which was a disarmament agreement for uh, of, the, of the Ukraine. And uh, in that disarmament agreement, it had uh, there was a lot of different uh, stuff that was going on, but essentially it was an agreement by uh, a number of different states, including Russia and the United States, to not use and uh, to not use Ukraine as a staging area and not to uh, transgress on their land. Now, if you look at that actual agreement, you'll see that the first thing that the actual people who are uh, violating the agreement are the Russians. But the the big thing here is that he sent is that ever since that time. Russia has been wary of the Ukraine joining NATO. Now, there are a number of other bordering countries, including Estonia, Lithuania, and such, who are actual NATO allies, and they are actually uh, directly bordering Russia as well as the Ukraine does. Those are kind of lost causes, in his opinion. With Ukraine, they are still not a part of NATO. And that makes this a very interesting point for him to make. The Russians, ever since that time when they de- claimed their independence and then they signed this disarmament agreement uh, under President Clinton, and this is also one. Of, uh, this is also the time at which, uh, under that disarmament agreement, I should mention, Ukraine gave up all of their nuclear arsenal, and so they they basically gave up their ability to threaten the the Russians with their uh, with nuclear weapons. And that left Russia with the nukes and took away all of the Ukraine's, Ukrainians' ability to actually use them in a defensive manner or to at least have them as a, as a method of deterrence, whether they use them or not. So during this period of time, they, they went through and they signed this document and then the uh, Soviets opposed 
have always opposed Ukraine joining NATO because they, what that means is that if the Ukrainians were to join NATO, if they were to do what they just did in the last week, that would bring the other 27 countries within NATO down upon them in a united front. So NATO was created originally with the point of not, of not allowing another world war. It was basically a treaty that said that all of these countries, the 27 signed, signed countries, if there were a war where a, another country aggressed against a country within that agreement, all of the other countries are pulled into the war with them and are obligated to act in their defense. What this created is the largest and most effective method of making sure that there wasn't one country that was able to mass their supplies and mass their military and take over the continent like what happened in World War II with Germany. So when Russia is fighting against Ukraine joining NATO, really what's going on is they're saying, well, if we want to take over Ukraine, we don't want the other 27 countries having to join them to come and defend them in a physical manner. We want them to be on their own like they are currently. And over the last 20 years, for whatever reason, Ukraine has still not become part of NATO. And actually, here's an interesting thing. So in December of last year, Ukraine President Zelensky, in an interview with HBO, was asked if there was anything he would ask President Biden if he could. This is December, before anything happened. He replied that he would ask Biden, quote, why are we still not in NATO? So, I don't know why. I don't know why they're not in NATO. I don't have any reason to believe that, that uh, I don't have any understanding of what's going on in there because I'm sure it's all filled with a bunch of bureaucrats and many different levels of, of craziness. But while they haven't been in NATO all this time, it's left them as a setting duck for Russians to come over and do exactly what they're doing. And so we're in this situation where uh, we run, where we have so many different layers of things that are going on. And so the U USSR and Putin himself have actively tried to keep the Ukrainians out and the Ukrainians out of NATO so that if they did what they did in the last week, it wouldn't be a complete action against them. All right, eight, inevitable sanctions. So he's arguing in this point that that the uh, that no matter what they do, no matter what Russia does, the West is always going to sanction them. So here's the quote. Once again, they threaten us with sanctions. They will still impose those. The stronger and more powerful our country becomes, they will always find an excuse to introduce more sanctions regardless of the situation in Ukraine. The only goal they have is to contain the development of Russia. Now, here's the, the most fascinating thing to me, is that, once again, this is completely false. Uh, Germany just struck a huge deal to buy, a, I think it's 30% of their oil from Russia. So they're buying, Germany is spending a, a huge amount of money buying oil directly from Russia and importing it. And, and uh, Germany has one of the largest economies in Europe in that area. And so it's a major issue as far as um, their economy goes to buy all this oil and to uh, get it from the Russians nonetheless. It, additionally, as far as sanctions go, there's actually a really interesting development that's happened in the last in the last year. Uh, there was a, a project called the Nord Stream Two gas pipeline. Now that was uh, started by uh, during the Obama presidency. Then the Trump presidency put it down, and they actually waived. They uh, they actually issued a sanction to stop that pipeline development, and then Biden in his last year, 
just went through and waived that sanction against the pipeline, the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, and then uh, and then uh, is allowing it to be finished. And his actual point, <laughs> here's a direct quote that's actually taken from the New York Post. His quote was, it's because it's almost completely finished. So President Biden is saying that, well, it's almost done anyway, so we'll just let them finish it. Uh, this is insanity. The, uh, the, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is also one of the reasons why, why excuse me, Russia feels so confident in actually taking over the Ukraine right now. The Ukraine has, a, uh, a major, has major Russian pipelines going through it. And so the Nord Stream 2 pipeline allows the Russians to circumvent the Ukraine and continue to pump their oil. So what is going on here is that one of the things that, that Ukraine was able to use as a method of defense against Russia in the past was they were able to uh, threaten Russia with the destruction of their oil pipelines. So if they could shut, shut down the oil pipelines that were running through Ukraine, then they could cut off uh, a large part of Russia's supply of oil. They could also keep them from exporting oil. And so when you're looking at this, it's a major issue for Russia is, well, it, this, is good, this is the majority of our government and majority of our economy is invested in oil. And so if, they, if the Ukrainians can just go and shut these off and basically cut us off at the knees, we can't go and invade them because they'll be able to do that before we can take over. So when Biden allowed the Russians to complete the Nord Stream pipeline that uh, goes from Russia to Germany and uh, allows them to circumvent the Ukraine, he effectively took away that defense from the Ukraine and uh, opened up the door for Russia to take over. So Putin says that it doesn't really matter what we're going to do. The Western states are always going to sanction us. It's just outwardly wrong. It doesn't actually have anything to do with reality. They've been an open partner in, uh, in the world for, well, almost, almost since the uh, 1994 agreement. And so when we go through all, uh, when we're breaking all of this stuff down, we're looking at the ultimate, ultimate overview there's just no evidence that this is the case. The only time they've been sanctioned is when they have tried to take over another piece of Ukraine over and over and over and over again. Now, here's one of his, his last points. It's actually his last point, and, uh, and thank goodness because I'm starting to lose my voice. The ninth point that he made is that uh, basically in this outwardly false claim, it, Putin describes that the Ukrainians have been attacking the people within the eastern sector of the country who are Russian sympathizers. Now, this is literally just reiterating a previous point, but here's the quote. Now, almost every day they are shelling settlements. They have amassed large troops. They are using vehicles and other heavy machinery. They are torturing people, children, women, and elderly people. It does not stop. We have seen no end to it. Can you believe the irony? Like, literally, you go and you listen to this and you're like, dude, this is literally what you are doing. And now you're saying that you're doing, that you are invading them. You're doing it because they were doing it. And then you don't provide any evidence that they actually were doing it. So it's just a paper thin argument uh, all the way through. He makes uh, several points that are all the same. And, and hopefully I haven't bored you too much breaking this down. But essentially, all these points. Uh, lead in one direction that is basically trying to open the door to say it's okay for us to invade 
because they are oppressing us and we're oppressed and we're the victim and all that stuff. He's basically trying to be the martyr and saying, oh, well, we have to we have to do this to save the Ukrainian people and so they don't come after us. And it's all defensive and all that stuff. And and he's trying to to lean into it. Now, here's the thing is that all of it is complete lie. And so we have to keep that in mind as we move forward and we look at how the Soviet regime has controlled their their country in the past and how they will do it in the future. Because what the power of the, the long telegram is, is that it basically lays out from A to Z exactly what their next step is going to be. And so we're able to look at that as our source book and take it and put it into action. And so far, it has worked out rather brilliantly. Uh, with the fall of the USSR in 1991, and by maintaining American strength and um, Pax Americana, I believe that we can still use that same playbook to tamp down on Russia. The only thing that matters is if we're actually strong enough to do it ourselves, and if our legislators are willing to do it. So, thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate it. I know this was a much longer episode than previously. I wanted to really give this 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 particular speech at enough time so we could actually digest it in detail. And in the following episodes, we'll be digging dip- deeper into the long telegram as well as Putin's actual history so we can find out more about this guy and why he's currently president and prime minister of Russia, how he got there, and all of those other things. So thank you guys so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Um, Again, my name is Donnie, and I'm from Oxus Practical Defense. What we do is we focus on personal consulting for uh, individuals who want to be more mindful about their practical defense, whether that's concealed carry training or if it's uh, non-armed training. We do uh, various other things in that area so we'll help people assess their own situations and build custom plans to help them additionally on top of that we work with churches and other organizations to formulate security plans build uh, civilian based security teams as well as make sure that everything is operating uh, above the radar and lawfully so thank you guys so much for listening i really appreciate it if you have any questions feel free to uh comment wherever this is posted and you can also send me a message you can go and follow us on facebook at oxus llc or on instagram at oxus practical defense thank you guys so much and have a great rest of your uh day evening afternoon night whatever it may be bye